Welcome to our third Renatus podcast. In this series, Renatus investor and advisor Greg Dilger sits down with Will Prendergast of Frontline. Frontline play in a different space to ourselves in Renatus. Frontline are early stage venture capital investors. In Renatus, we are a boutique private equity firm backing more mature businesses. Since we founded Renatus, Frontline are a firm we've been inspired by as they are a real entrepreneur-friendly firm, no-nonsense, very smart operators with some great investments completed and exited. We hope you enjoy the podcast. I'm joined today by Will Prendergast, the joint founder of Frontline Venture Capital. Frontline is an unusual Irish VC fund in that it not only invests in Irish, UK and European startups, they also invest in young US technology companies who specifically want to expand into Europe. So, Will, before you tell us uh, more about what you guys are doing in Frontline, you might spend a few minutes on yourself, your background, where you come from, your education, and maybe your work experience uh, prior to founding Frontline. Yeah, for my sins, I, uh, I grew up in Mayo. I'm now uh, living in Dublin, married with four kids. Alina's my wife and four kids between four and ten, Timo, Henrik, Tula, and Lenny. So I'm, I'm 43, and the early part of my my life, I, I grew up in a, on a farm in the countryside in Mayo, spent my primary schooling there and then went on to my secondary school in Glanstall and Limerick. So I think maybe we'll come on to it later as we talk about the entrepreneurial journey, but I certainly ascribe a lot of my own entrepreneurial journey to growing up on a farm with entrepreneurial parents who had entrepreneurial parents themselves. Um, and I think that sort of DNA, you know, kind of carries through, carries through in people. So after my uh, after being in Glenstall, I went on and did uh, chemical engineering in UCD. I don't think, like most of my class, I don't think I was ever hell set on being a, a chemical engineer, but it seemed like a, a good thing to do for a while as I went through university. And, and after leaving university, I then trained as a chef for a while, maybe a, a less obvious choice, but I did it more as a life skill rather than a profession. And that's probably one of one of the best investments I've made to date. I recall in college, one of my friends telling me, a female friend, that I'd been upgraded from possible to eligible, having completed a, a training course as a chef. So, uh, so that paid off. Very good. In terms of real jobs after the chef situation, I know you worked for Accenture at some point. Was that your first sort of proper job? As, as yeah, that was my first real job after after university. I moved to London and started working with them. I think I was. I was in a hurry and impatient to kind of get experience, and I felt that Accenture would be a good place to do that. I, I felt I needed to kind of get off the island for a while, which is a, a decision that I, I was grateful for after the event. Um, and I got a lot of experience over, I worked there for six years, traveling across Europe and working with them as a junior. Um, it was great experience that stood to me later on in life. Um, but as a business model, they, you know, they certainly know how to sweat the assets, which in this case was me. Very good. And then that's where I first came across you. Then uh, you moved back home uh, and you worked for some, a number of years with NCB Ventures. Yeah, I, I moved back to Ireland and I, I really wanted to get into venture capital. At the time, it was venture capital was pretty small within Europe and, you know, particularly so within Ireland. But I'd I decided that I wanted to get into venture capital. Ultimately, I wanted to start my own business, and a, and a good way of getting the education for that was to work in in venture capital, understand the things that you should do, shouldn't do, um, before starting my own business. Ultimately, uh, I realized that I love venture and the energy I got from working with entrepreneurs. So so Frontline that we 
we'll come on to in a while, became that startup for me. Uh, but that's how I ended up in venture in the first place. Great. So then I, how many years did you spend in NCB? You must be three, four? Uh, I think it was five, five, five years in, in five. NCB. Yeah. Following that. Okay. That, now, sorry, what date was, what did you found, or would you say you founded Frontline? What was the exact date? Was it 2000 and? Yeah, it was at the at the, ver- the very end of 2012. So we're, uh, yeah. 2012. So in, tw- in 2012, yeah, 2012, you founded Frontline. Now your partners there, uh, co-founders, William McQuillan and Shay Garvey, uh, I hadn't heard of uh, William uh, before. Uh, I heard of him now. And Shay Garvey has been around quite a long time in the venture capital scene. How did um, how did it come about that you three guys got together to form Frontline? Yeah, we, it's kind of funny because we all came at it from a different starting point. I guess when I got into venture, I was trying to, the, the feedback loops in venture capital are very long. So, you know, uh, seven years, I would say, is probably the minimum from when you make an investment, you figure out if it's going to work. So, Obviously, if you're waiting for seven years to figure out if every decision was a good or bad one and to learn from that, the, the iteration means that uh, you don't get very far. So when I was at NCB, I was trying to figure out a, a, a way of learning. And I joined a network in the US, you know, the home of venture capital, uh, which was like a mini MBA, I guess, called the Kaufman Fellows Program. Uh, and yes. through that, I used to travel out once a quarter to the, the Bay Area and I'd spend a week at a learning course and then a week of networking. And I started, you know, hearing how those venture capitalists were talking, what was evolving in the US. And I guess like all things, well, not all things, but most things, what happens in the US does come towards us. Um, so so I was trying to figure out how what I was hearing in the US would translate into Europe. Shea separately had, uh, this was around the time of the recession in Ireland and their kind of recapitalization of the banks. And he had taken over a fund that was making active seed investments in Ireland. And, and he had noticed a change in terms of what, what entrepreneurs were looking for. Um, mm. And it was uh, triggered by some of the things, cloud computing and other things, but they were looking for smaller checks typically, but faster in a more flexible format. Um, so he had a view of, of how things were changing. And then William McQuillan was an entrepreneur raising capital that Shay and I had met completely separately because we we're in two different firms. He went through the process of fundraising and wasn't particularly enamored with the products available to entrepreneurs at the time, but was grateful, I think, for some of the feedback that uh, Shay and myself gave him independently. Mm. So when we came together, it was a, it was a kind of a meeting of minds that there was a new product requ- required. And, and I think the three of us were just quite aligned on, on what that needed to be. Um, and I think also what a venture firm needed to be longer term. And Will, I presume you had to fund this yourselves really uh, personally at this point, the setting up of the firm and all the costs and expenses that go with that. Yeah, it, it definitely, I remember the, a, a good friend of mine who's in venture and he knew I loved venture capital. So when I was leaving NCB to start my own firm, you know, it was a, a big decision for me because it's, you know, it's not easy to get back in. Uh, and I, I asked him for some advice and he asked me about what was my personal cash runway. And I, I told him, I told him what it was in months. <laughs> and he said, the single piece of advice I have for you is figure, figure out how to make that double, you know, double that dur- duration, which, which I did mm. and which I needed to do. So, so like every entrepreneur, you need to, you know, you need to make it work. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, I don't know, I, I had a conviction at the time. I think when you've, when you've conviction, it's, it's easy to kind of ignore a lot of these things. And so, so when you got together and Frontline was founded, I don't know where you, 
where you first set up, I'm sure it was probably one room somewhere, a nice low-cost setup, and you were going to raise a fund, your first fund. What sort of number did you have in mind for that fund? What did you think was, at that time, a good number, and what did you end up with? Yeah, we had a kind of counterintuitive plan, which was raise smaller funds. Um, You know, the kind of prevailing wisdom at the time is you got more successful, you raise bigger funds, and ours was you raise smaller funds more frequently. So we set out to raise 35 million in the first fund. We ended up that it was 50, which was probably the right number. But the challenge became trying to convince people that a small fund made sense, particularly for larger institutional investors. So we challenged a lot of, we, we started at the entrepreneur and what product they wanted, and then we created a fund and a strategy. But the knock on impact is that we were changing some of the um the standards in the industry and every time we did that we created a lot of friction for ourselves so small funds were actually harder than larger funds i think in many ways yeah yeah when obviously the fund fund and the business has evolved i know you have two funds now which you may talk about the second one soon but when you first set up and you had your first fund what was your um your stated objective and what were you going to invest in and how you were going to invest and what was your value add and your point of difference? Not, not necessarily what it is now. What was it yeah. then? So, so I think at a, before the fund, I, I guess we had a firm level objective and this was really around creating a learning organization that if you think about entrepreneurs continue to change the world and, and they react very rapidly to things and come up with new ideas. And then, kind of next after that are the venture firms who adopt their model to what the entrepreneurs want. And then there are the people who invest in funds who adopt to what the the venture firms are coming up with. And we just felt that the gap between what the entrepreneur wanted, what the fund manager was giving and right up to the LPs, that had got very big, which is part of why the high frequency funds. So we wanted to create something that would continue learning and staying very close to the needs of the founders. So thinking about the products. So that was like the North Star that was a learning organization that would exist actually beyond Shea or I or William or anybody else. It it had to survive beyond us. That was was success. It wasn't an individual um, investment. So the first fund, the, the kind of shift that we had apart from well, the main shift was around specialism. So at the time, a lot of funds were generalist and national focused. Um, so we said we're going to do business to business, early stage software only, starting in Europe and then across the UK and eventually across Europe, uh, sorry, Ireland, UK, and then Europe. But it was really about specialism in one sector. And and even at that early stage, you had, it wasn't just Irish, promising Irish firms were investing and you were you were looking for investee companies in the UK and in Europe at that time. And how, you know, part, obviously the three of you have been around a bit, so you've you've got your own networks, but how do you find these companies and, and how or perhaps they find you or how does it typically work or what what, what way do you like yeah. it to work? We, William McQuillan was always based in the UK. So, so it was always part of the plan to be across Europe. It was just a question of how, how could we do that in steps. In terms of meeting the companies, I think, you know, all three of us had our own different networks. And I think, you know, coming to, we didn't even appreciate it at the time, but there's an, a, you know, a 10 year age gap at least between myself, William and Shay. And that just, you know, that alone means that we have different networks. Um, so, so I think that helped, but, you know, we have different other professional networks and other things. And I would say the other thing is we got, it's funny when you step out to create your own venture, you, we got a huge amount of support from entrepreneurs uh, because there's a kind of an empathy association there. 
you mentioned sure. earlier about our first office. You know, our first office was in the NCI, um, National College of Ireland and the IFSC. And we moved in there because it was where a bunch of startups we had funded had had their first office. Um, so in there, there was, you know, the, the box ever guys at the time and pointy moved in afterwards. And I think, uh, the bright bill guys had gone through there. So, yeah, so, so, so we got a great kind of support from the entrepreneurial community and people sent us, uh, opportunities as a result, even before we had the capital. Apart from your, your specialism, uh, which, which you've, you've outlined there, the, the B2B uh, sort of software companies and, and money, because you bring money. Other differentiating factors, did you have, and your age, is it an unusual bunch of guys thrust together? Why would companies like working with you as opposed to somebody else? There are certain things that specialism gives you. We had a model which was high, you know, investing in quite a lot of companies that were all very similar. And as a result, we were building a network where, the answer to any question you might have as an entrepreneur probably lay within that group of founders. So, so we had, by being specialists, we'd put ourselves in a unique position to create the, you know, the great peer group for you to learn. And then this question is like, you know, can you organize yourself and those companies to be able to share those learnings? So, so that was one thing is just the, the, the knowledge that existed in that group. And, and so the fourth person we hired in frontline, which again was a non-obvious hire at the time, was uh, somebody with the title of head of platform. So no venture fund in Europe had a head of platform at that point. Now there's probably a pe- 100 people with that title. And their only job was to move between all the companies, figure out the questions that the founders had in their mind, figure out who else had answered that question three months earlier, and kind of remove that hurdle from the, the, the sprint that they were on. So, so that, okay. was, that was a big part of what we had to offer. These are kind of techie firms, to use that, that term, and very many young promoters, I, I assume, as well. So they, they're not particularly familiar with the ways of the world and the machinations of business and stuff like that. So they may be very good at their core skill, but they struggle when it comes to expanding and developing their business, and they need a lot of help. Yeah, the, the, there's just so many things to do as an entrepreneur, and you've no resources. So, you know, uh, and again, we back a lot of first-time founders. So just when you're doing something for the first time, there's a steep learning curve so we were trying to shorten that learning curve all the time and that was actually the the metric is you know we had this expression you know learning at the speed of experience was not fast enough for everybody um so we were trying to learn faster than the speed of experience and that was how we we did but just coming back to your question about like why would people work with us there's some great research that a, a friend of mine did where they asked 100 VCs, what they thought entrepreneurs wanted in an investor. And then they asked the entrepreneurs what they wanted in an investor. And uh, surprising or unsurprising, those are, were wildly different answers. I think that the VCs thought it was a lot about the brand of the firm and all of the, the value-add things that they could do. But the, the top three things for the entrepreneurs were terms, maybe unsurprisingly, in terms of the, the, the valuation, speed, and personal chemistry. So we think a lot about those three things in how we operate. So the people that work within the firm, you know, it's very important that they're empathetic and associated with the entrepreneurs. It is very important that we have terms that people feel that's fair. Uh, neither should, side should probably feel delighted about it, but both of them should feel it's fair. And, and then speed is probably the most underestimated competitive advantage. So, you know, we've turned things around in, in you know, at its shortest two days uh so that's a you know those are three good reasons why 
any founder would want to work with any firm. Will, how do you cope with the situation? Many of these firms are pre, they're certainly pre-profit. Many, I, I assume some are pre-revenue. In terms of coming up with a valuation there and in light of competitors, your competitors trying to get back some very um, strong promoter, how do you resist the temptation not to pay up too much? Or how do you even know what paying up too much is? Yeah, it's very, very difficult. We actually did an analysis a couple of years ago, William McQuillan did it, where we looked at all the investment opportunities we had passed on because the valuation was too high. Uh, and those were some of the most successful companies that we had seen. Um, and, and actually, that analysis gave us the confidence to, to pay up more. Uh, and yeah, we, we, we pushed the envelope more when it came to ent- entry valuation, because often the ones that are priced up, it, it's for a reason. So, yes. so I think that's one, but it is a very difficult exercise. You know, 70% um, origin in our early funds, which were the kind of seed stage funds, 70% of what we did was pre-revenue and uh, a lot of it was pre-product as well. So, so really, really early. And, and therefore, you can only focus on the market. If it works, how big could it be? Uh, and those numbers can be very big. So, you know, frankly, you don't need to worry so much about the entry point. I just made a note of this earlier on, but you're you're essentially in the talent spotting business uh, in, in a way, and you you spot some talent, you spot a very special person or group of people, and you're backing them. Clearly, they have a plan, and there's a market, and all those things add up. But like coming up with the price, the right price there, as you say, it's kind of irrelevant if the thing works out. You're in it at a very low level, and as a matter of interest, what, what's your? Do you have a desired percentage stake in a company that you would take? you know, day one? I think historically all funds would have said in the kind of 10 to 25% range. That has, I would say for all funds, migrated down over time. Uh, so I don't know I don't know what our, our standard is now, but, I, you know, I'd say it's probably somewhere in the 10 to 15% range. And I'd say that's similar for, for most funds. Would you ever, perhaps being the first mover, bring another company in with you, another VC of similar mind to yourselves, if the number was outside the constraints of your fund in terms of, of size? Sometimes, but you hit the nail on the head about similar, you know, similar minded to yourself, trying to find somebody, you know, everybody has a different view on talent and different view on markets, and then everybody has a different operating style. And if you put those three together and say, what's the chances that the person I want to work with, you know, connects with this person and likes that market, it, it's pretty hard to pull off. We, we tend to lead most of the deals that we do, and, and generally we will uh, put in most of the round. Uh, and the piece that we leave open is for angel investors that we know can be helpful to those founders over time. Well, I assume that some of the companies you end up investing in, you've known them or been watching them or chatting to them or just you know getting inside their heads and, and helping them maybe, maybe a number of years before the investment happens. Is that... The way it I works. would like I would like that to be the way it works because you know you would get to understand the person and vice versa. The, re- the reality is yeah. that uh, a lot of these ideas come at us quicker and quicker, so it's not unusual that we you know we're meeting somebody and and we need to make an investment decision in you know in two weeks. So so that means you have to change how you organize yourself. But you know we might have met that person five times in two weeks rather than five times over two years. Sometimes when it, when it's repeat entrepreneurs, that's different. So you know, we we have in the past backed people who have exited their business and then backed them again. Slightly general general question here: Why do you think startups fail? You're, you're coming across lots of them and very excited, uh, buzzed up people with their idea. What what's what are the common things that just don't work? Yeah, I guess the first thing is that you know startups are designed to fail. 
in, in like certainly in our model, we assume that you know a lot of them will fail. And I think the you know founders, you have to be optimistic, otherwise you wouldn't start. But I think founders know themselves that they're trying to create magic when you're starting a new business and taking on incumbents. It, like in a lot of cases, the company never just finds you know what they call product market fit. You create a product, you think that this is going to be what everyone needs, and then you find out that the market doesn't care about it as much as you thought. So, so that's you know many companies just never get that moment where where they've created the right product. That's probably the you know the the number one. I, obviously, you know, like companies, if you ask a founder, they'd say that you know running out of money is one. But I suppose sitting in our seat, that's not usually the one that we think about. Well, would you think that when you meet a promoter or a group of promoters that you know really quickly whether you're going to be putting money into a company just by the way they carry themselves, the priorities, just the their general view of things? You know, we're back to the talent spotting thing. When you see very special people with a special idea, you can imagine perhaps going back to the early days of the Collisons when they would have arrived in looking for money, which which they did. Uh, it wouldn't have been that hard to see. I don't think it wouldn't have been. They were sort of box office from a very early day. But I, I presume you you can tell pretty quickly we're onto something special here. VCs tend to look at two things: the size of the market and the you know the the founding team. And I think at the start of my career, I was more interested in the market and the product and what's the thing that they're making. And I think over time, I focus more and more on the entrepreneur. I guess I've kind of learned that that's yeah. the great talent is the leading indicator for everything. So it's a, it's a tricky one to answer. I would say earlier in my career, I would not have made quick assessments. But, you know, 15 years in, I've probably seen, I don't know, thousands or Tens of thousands, uh, maybe maybe not as much as that, but certainly thousands of entrepreneurs, and and you do realize an outlier in terms of the insi insights that they have. So so you meet an entrepreneur, and immediately in the first five or ten minutes, they're starting to educate you about something that you thought you maybe you thought you already knew about it, but it's something completely new, and it, it kind of starts you thinking. So if 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 they have you really scratching your head in the meeting, I think that's yeah, that's a, a real sign that this is somebody to work with, and we've worked with just. On that topic, there's definitely no CV that you need to be a successful entrepreneur. So you mentioned, you know, the Collison example, but again, other examples close to home. So Shane Kern and Evervault is a, an Irish company. Uh, we, we have invested in his company. He was 18 when he presented to us. We've just invested in a company, Greg Tarr, 17-year-olds doing a kind of AI software. And, and it can be at the other end of the age range as well, or, or experience from many dimensions. So, but there is, you're right, you do sense something special about individuals uh, early on in meetings. Interesting that both of both Shane Kern and the Collisons, um, in their early days, they were or not entrepreneurs, the um, Aer Lingus um, Young Scientist of the Year. They're showing up. There's obviously some, some uh, good stuff showing up at that event. Yeah, for sure. Well, we've spoken there about your original uh, fund uh, and and how that was set up. What brought about the X fund? How how soon afterwards did that come about? And the X fund is a different type of fund. This is a fund investing in essentially U.S. Uh, small U.S. B two B businesses who want to internationalize and come to Europe. We've always had this product mindset about what does the entrepreneur want and create a product around that. And the vision for Frontline, as stated today, is to, is to kind of create a a venture capital firm where financial capital is the least valuable part of the offering. 
And we had uh, a partner, Stephen McIntyre, join us. I think it was in, in about 2016. Stephen had been previously at Google and then at Twitter. He set up their presence in Europe. And Stephen started working with us on the early stage investing side. Uh, and obviously, our model is find companies in Europe, help them grow into the biggest market, which is the US for software. About 60, 70% of the, the market is in the US. We, at the same time, we're trying to figure out how do we crack into the US market and invest in the best companies there. That's a kind of a tall order for a very mature industry in the US with a lot of capital. But through a combination of, you know, Stephen's experience in helping companies set up in Europe and the fund model and network that Frontline had in Europe, we started spinning up an idea to, to pitch to the best CEOs in the US that we would help them build their, essentially their go-to-market or build their commercial operations in Europe. And in return, that we would be able to invest a small amount in their funding rounds. So targeting just you know the top 1% of, of those companies that are on an IPO track. At the stage that they come to Europe, it's very different to seed investing. Seed investing, it's, it's not obvious who's going to be a winner because it's, they're just starting. They haven't even built the product. Sure. The ones that are in the US at the time that they're coming to Europe, it's already quite obvious who, who are going to be the winners and who will go public in four or five years' time. But it's impossible to access those companies you know, unless you're you know, one of two or three names in the US that's been around for 50 years. So we, we kind of designed this way to, to get into these companies by having you know, one very specific trick, but something that was really compelling to the CEO. Um, and you know, 30, 30%, the flip of the, the US percentage, 30% plus percent of their revenues will come from Europe. So so if you can pitch something, meaningful. yeah. And we, presumably you would be joining on their share register, uh, their original founders and other VC companies. You'd be coming in at a later stage of funding. Correct. So we'd be a small shareholder in those companies. What scale of fund is that and what sort of investors have invested in that fund? So the most recent fund was a $75 million fund. And again, designed around what size check could we write in those companies? Sure. Um, and then we will raise other funds. So we'll link, increase that size. I guess that was a quite a differentiated idea. So there was a bit to be proven out, but now, now it has been proven out. The funny thing about that again is, you know, I mentioned at the start about small funds makes it challenging in some ways. With this fund, it had a, a number of unusual aspects. So it was a European fund investing in the US. Mm. which uh, was ch challenging for, for some people to, to get their head around how you could access the. We were investing and we would own a very small shareholding. We would not be on the board. There was a, a checklist of things that we would not be, which you know conventional wisdom would say you should be. But all we cared, all we cared about is, was this compelling to the CEO? And for the CEO, it was more compelling if you were in Europe, if you could help them on their revenues. And uh, they didn't want you on your board because they had a great board already. So. Yeah, so that's the size of the fund. You don't have additionally have a consulting role with them in terms of, of helping them with the, these issues. You're purely an investor is where your economics lie. It, yeah, I suppose you, you could consider it a, a kind of a very specialized, uh, high impact consulting, but where you're being paid in ability to invest. Because if you believe that these companies are the future category leaders and you can see, see how the how large the market caps of some of these can be, then, you know, why would you get paid a, a fee when you can be? And for the CEOs of those companies, they want somebody who's aligned with them. And, and so being equity aligned is good for the CEO and it's good for us. So it's, it works both sides.
I can see to uh, the very obvious um, complementary issues that come up with both funds being quite different. And there's a network that you're building and people that you're getting to know well, which is going to be really helpful for the whole yeah. thing. It's a it's a fabulous uh, it's a fabulous mix. Well, uh, traditionally, you know, from my prehistoric viewpoint, anyway, the VC firms, it was and VC funds classically would invest, say, for example, in ten different companies. And at the end of the term, uh, when the fund was was wound down and the investors are have their money back, typically there might be two uh, of the ten companies would have failed utterly, just wouldn't have, have taken off. Maybe five or six would have sort of varying degrees of success and maybe getting your money back a little bit more. And maybe three did extremely well, perhaps one better than extremely well. And that's how the returns would come together to make it an attractive proposition. Is, has that changed much, do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think what has changed is that the outlier effect has become even stronger. So in early stage venture investing, I think the portfolio sizes are, are bigger. So if you think about a portfolio for, for us on the seed side, it might be you know, 30, 40 companies. And you're looking at those thinking, you know, the returns in that fund is probably going to come from one or two of the 30 or 40. It's a much bigger outlier effect. And the filter that we would place for any investment we were making is if this company works out, can it return the entire fund at least once? So it's a much, you know, it's a very skewed model. And, you know, the the failure rates are, are quite low in terms of, you know, the companies that actually go out of business. But as a venture firm, they don't generate, they don't have a big impact on return. So it, it really is like the one or two companies rather than, yeah, more than that, that, that really drive the returns in funds. Okay, well, we're, we're coming towards the end. And this has been great. Just, I, I, I didn't mention before, just in terms of picking winners, and this is all about picking winners for you, but what is really at the core for you in terms of picking winning companies and, and uh, investing in people like like we've been speaking about through this podcast. Yeah, I think when people look at venture, you know, because we've discussed there it is an outlier effect. So people focus on the winners. Certainly the way that we approach it is very much about how to build a firm that will pick lots of winners over time um, rather than being, you know, hyper focused on, you know, the individual winner. So for us it's about building the how do we make decisions as a group? Because obviously, this is not this is not one individual, like a private investor making a decision. It's a it's a group of professionals and an investment team. So so we think about how to build a firm that has the you know the trust between those people, the confidence and 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 the, all of those bonds that make good investment decisions, kind of over and over again, knowing that if you focus on those kind of on the inputs, eventually you know you will have success because you have a good process that's behind it. So we think very much about the firm. In terms of the decisions themselves, we definitely, you know, over time have had to formalize that process. So we now have written down all of the rules of engagement about what it takes for a company to get to the different stages. Particularly in early stage investing, we don't believe in consensus investing. So if everybody thinks it's a good idea, it's probably a bad idea. So, So we have kind of thresholds where people can make decisions individually, depending on their seniority, and then larger investment decisions where there needs to be more support for it. But definitely, we stay away from consensus decision-making. So would it be fair to say that there would be robust debate uh, regarding this issue uh, and robust debate regularly? Yeah, and I think it's important to be able to have that. So you can only you can only have that if you have the trust built up over time and you've 
you built a firm where everybody understands that you know you're 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 trying to trying to create a process going to make lots of good decisions rather than you know the the individual discussion in the room so there's definitely dissent and contrarian views are welcomed but then once we make a decision on an individual company then you know that's a decision that the group has made and and everybody moves on beyond that and gets behind that company i think one of the um i was reading one of the uh, famous uh, venture capitalists in San Francisco was referring to that particular issue as disagree and commit. Once you've once you've uh, decided to do it, that's it. You can't be moaning about it for the next ten that's years. That's a very nice way of putting it. Well, that's in, look. It's fascinating stuff, and you guys are doing doing great work. I uh, really all I want to do now is thank you for giving us your time, Renatus. Though not Renatus is, is an investment company as well. It's a private equity company. Invests in completely different types of businesses and does different things. But we're very interested in what you guys do. And I guess some of the people in the Renatus community would be very interested in what you guys are doing as well. But it's been great talking to you and uh, we'll uh, we'll be in touch very soon. So thank you Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on.